Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, it's Brendan here with Mark on the end of the internets. And vetgurus.com is a place to go, Mark. It is the week ending March the 1st, 2019, episode 72. Mark, as usual, I don't tell you much about what's happening in the preamble to make it fresh. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I spent an interesting weekend this weekend, um, just gone, Mark. And um, I was very tired at the end of it i decided i need to get back into um doing something non-vetty because as you know i have been um furiously writing some notes for various um presentations and, and teaching um both veterinary students um technicians nurses and, and veterinarians um with upcoming events i have to do so i was getting a little bit a little bit frayed mark so i thought no I'm going to get back into doing something completely different. And I went out on the weekend and I did some woodworking, Mark, and I spent at home and um, I signed up for a bit of a course um, where they give you plans and they work you through the basics again of woodworking. And I have done a little bit in the past, which I won't bore bore all all our listeners about. Um, But I spent the weekend making a table a woodworking table so a work table mark so um and the challenge there is how do you make a work table when you haven't got a work table (laughs) um but they they uh the the little videos that come with the course um that sort of you get um sent to you online and um you have a list of your um the wood the lumber you have to buy um or you don't have to buy but um head down to um, the Bunnings here and um, bought a whole lot of gear. You and, could um, Oh, you could. You could do that. Um, yeah, I, I, well, don't tell Annie, but I pulled off a few um, boards off the side of our house on the side she doesn't walk down, so to help make my table, my work table. And, um, yeah, I just ended up um, – I did the final bit this afternoon, Mark, and that was put in four, four little um, casters on the bottom of it because it's very heavy because it's sort of industrial strength um, table once um, you put it all together. And I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I must have been, I was knackered. I was very tired at the end of the two days, but um, I was feeling mentally very, um, very worn out, but in a good way, if you know what I mean. So, Brendan, um, is this is this a, um, uh, you know, one of those uh, craftsman, um, hipster Melbourne things, and, and you're not allowed to use, uh, you know, electric, um, you know, you've ah, got... so what um, hand tools? No, this one is a, certainly a power tool sort of course. Ah. Um, having said that, I did um, I did do a course through a, a place called the Melbourne Guild of Fine Woodworking, or the Melbourne Guild of Woodworking. It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings, it does. doesn't it, or Harry Potter? And um, I enjoyed that course, and that was making what's called um, bent wood boxes and. As the name implies, it is just heating up and um, bending these sheets of um, one sheet of um, wood, um, pliable wood, into um, boxes, and it's it was fantastic. I loved it, and you and you build up these. Um, well, I think I made about four or five of them over. I think it was a weekend course that one um, as well. Um, and it was fantastic, and that one was sort of using the more basic tools. It was, and I, I must admit, I have a sort of a, a liking for that um, shaker style furniture. You know, the clean lines and the minimalist look of um, the furniture, and um, and that reminded me of that. It was in that bent wood boxes go back to that sort of um, US, um, I don't know, early 1900s, 1800s um, sort of system. And, yeah, I, I was quite proud of those. And, and they were, you, you don't glue them, you just use these um, little joints um, that that hold them together. It was amazing. And, uh, yeah, they're still sitting. I have to show them next time you come down to Melbourne, Mark, and you visit. So what? tell me, give me some insight into the, you know, the, the aspects of this work that um, – 
uh, gratify you? Is it is it an odor thing? Is it a sense of accomplishment once it's put together? Is it um, you know the the tactile nature of woodworking? What what rocks your boat when it comes to woodworking, Brendan? Well, it's certainly not the odor because I do, um, it's you end up with a pretty horrible. Um, Bronchitis. If you don't um, wear some protection there for some of the wood that <laughs> um, that, that those um, the wood that has the chemicals in there, like some of the ply and that, you've got to be very careful with that. Um, no, I think it's more that they just. I don't know. I find it a little bit zen, even 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 those um, when you're using the power tools and the, and the um, the table saws etc. You need to use. Um, hearing protection because um, it's pretty bloody noisy but um it's just to, just taking your time and just just measuring and 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 cutting out the wood and then um measure twice gluing and screwing them together yeah and it's just that just a, just watching it slowly come together um i don't know there's something i find um i find um relaxing about doing that yeah um but you know, I think it's important to. I thought, yeah, I need to. I need to take a step back and and not be, not to you know practice what I preach. <laughs> well, I'm I'm proud of you. Off. I'm proud of you, Brendan, because I think um, you know, we talk often about work life balance, and I know that you're you are very good at um, preaching the benefits of work life balance, but you are not the um, the best demonstrate boy. that's right um so i am glad that you've done that and and i feel that's a you know i feel guilty because i think i am the poster boy for work-life balance i try to to um make sure that um my time at work is well balanced by the things other things that i enjoy doing and um and that's the frustrating thing at the moment because um i'm un, you know i've i've uh, work with a wonderful team of veterinarians and the wonderful Dr. Lily has taken a short uh, three-week, two or three-week break to um, spend some time in Austria and um, do a little bit of uh, uh, snow work. And um, and so I've had to um, step back up to absolutely, uh, you know, the typical 40 plus hours a week that vets normally work. And I don't know how they do it, Brendan. I don't know how you do it. Um, I, I can't wait till she gets back and I can get back into my comfort zone of balance. And zen. It's good for your soul, Mark. <laughs> I'm doing some work for once instead of sat out there in the middle of a pond and, and taking photos of <laughs> birds. Um, but good on you. Yes, it's, um, you know, work sometimes is work and it can be a bit of a slog, you know, no matter how much we... We love the profession. It's still at certain times work, and but um, yeah, I think it's better than sitting sitting in a factory making things with a with a table saw or, or, or screwing parts together all day every day. I think that would drive me batty, Mark. I don't know about you, but yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, the next um, little project on the list that they give you a a, um, a weekend project project every week obviously um and you have as unlimited time to do it you don't have to do it um when they send you the plans etc um i think the next one's a little sort of side table um a basic sort of looking out outside sort of side table and i've looked through the projects and yeah not all of them are my style but um each one builds on the previous one as far as the the skills you gain um, with with doing certain cuts and gluing techniques and construction techniques, Mark. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. So I'm I'm hoping I'll get there and I'll get um, get there in the end. And hopefully, um, if I end up making a chair or a bench, um, that when I sit on it, it doesn't fall apart. It's <laughs> <laughs> the main thing. I have to put little warning signs on them. So yeah, that's what I've been doing, Mark. Um, so. I think you had a review that we should jump into well, um, it, instead of Woodworking 101. Look, I just wanted to touch on, we've. Well, I had um, many years ago a, um, a surgical loop and, uh, and I often tell the story of uh, when I first graduated, got my first job, went and uh, talked to Dr. Uh, Newell, my mentor, um, and I used to rip the absolute out of him because his vision was failing and he couldn't see things that I could see. Um, and of course, karma has 
come to bite me in the posterior and um, and as all of us as we age um, uh, so I shouldn't have been so um, well disrespectful as a young man um, I should have known that it would come to me in uh, due course but um, I, I similarly now struggle though there was one day Brendan where I pulled out the um, the uh, enrofloxacin um, uh, insert in a popularly named generic brand, and um, and it just seemed to me that um, the font had shrunk several sizes overnight. <laughs> um, and I know the feeling. Yeah. hell had gotten damn sight blurrier than the last time I looked at it. Anyway, all that points to the need for magnification, and particularly for the sort of work that you and I do, um, magnification with illumination through the benefit of a surgical loop um, is an absolute must, I find. And it really does, you know, uh, enhance uh, the the whatever the the um, uh, it may not necessarily be a surgical procedure. It may just be a um, a, uh, a close observation, a simple um, uh, physical examination. But um, that illumination and magnification makes a huge difference to me. Now I know. Um, we actually are getting to the stage at work where there's some battle over the surgical loop because um, particularly the illumination, the direct illumination on the forehead um, does make a big difference. And particularly for procedures like um, looking in the mouth of rabbits, as you would regularly do, Brendan, um, if we've got to do a dental procedure on a rabbit, um, having that a light source just a little bit above the spot directly between your eyes can allow you to illuminate the very caudal recesses of the buccal cavity and have a great look at those teeth where without you would be, um, well, working in the dark. Um, so I, I, I do often find that um, some of my younger colleagues are pinching the loop without the magnifying glasses and um, and just taking advantage of the light. Now, the the set we've got has what's often referred to as a flip down setup. So um, there are a set of glasses, um, and uh, those glasses are magnifying glasses. And you can f uh, um, no, no, they're just uh, glasses, and you can flip down the magnifying. You know the little their lenses that sit in front of the glasses that you let you look at um, something with magnification. And then the second flip down uh, allows the, uh, the light to come down and sit between your eyes, just a little bit above this, the, you know, the plane between the center of your two eyes um, and uh, illuminate your field of view. Now, I have one complaint um, most of these are, um, are great and the lenses um, uh, lock into position over the, uh, you know, the, the um, spectacles um, neatly so that your magnification is excellent. But the set that we've got has a light that sits on a vertical pole and there is the possibility of moving it a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left. The vertical pole on which the light source sits is not sort of locked into the same um, directly in front of your view. And this does present me with regularly a little bit of just 10, 20 seconds before I do an examination. And particularly if I use them in a consult room, that's an embarrassing amount of time to just adjust the light uh, so that it directly looks at um, the area of magnification that the flip-down lenses allow me to view. So, so my tip, Brendan, um, yes. is to look for uh, a surgical loop which does not allow that lateral movement in the light source that sits in front of the uh, the. Um, uh, um, magnifying lenses. I reckon if it does that left to right thing, it'll slow you down significantly and sometimes become very, very annoying. 
Um, the other thing I find about the illumination is that um, the, the light source that we have um, does have limited ability to, uh, you know, you rotate the outer ring of the light source and it can make it spread a little bit. Um, and that's great because often you want a very bright focal light, maybe looking at uh, a bearded dragon's eye and you want a very specific point lit up. Um, but oftentimes you're looking for a much broader uh, field of view. And so a light source that has the ability to get quite wide um, or very narrow is an advantage as well, I find. So those, my tip is to look for a light source that doesn't slide side to side, that isn't fixed on a pillar that allows it to rotate and to look for some uh, so a light source that uh, has a fairly wide range in um, you know its ability to widen or narrow. Um, so keep it simple is what you're saying <laughs> with the light source. Now, does it? Can you vary the actual power of the light, or just um, via um, secondarily, but via um, the the focal point? No, the loop loop that I've got at the moment does have a little lever on it, which sits right above my ear, so it makes me look a little bit like a robot, um, and I can I can. Um, uh, vary the light, which is obviously a, a very useful thing um, and something that I would also uh, look for. Um, but, um, but uh, yes, uh, having that variable um, measure is a definite positive, Brendan. Yes, and the my final question, Mark, <laughs> before you give your score out of 10, is can you use it with sp- spectacles on as well so with prescription glasses or do you just use it as on its own um so i presume you can adjust the the actual diopter on it um no you can't can't. (laughs) no you can't um but the interesting thing is um and i did panic about this a little bit because these spectacles that come with the kit are um as zero diopters and my current reading glasses the pair of which i'm wearing at the moment um i they've bloody hell they've grown in number over the last few years each time i start to feel comfortable with a pair of glasses um i've got to get go and get and you know they uh, jump up the good thing is when i do get you know um the, the when i go to my optometrist my lenses are often you know 2.76 or 2.24 i love it when i get to the even number so i can go to the uh, local garage and buy a 15 dollar pair of 3.0s and buy four or five of them so that's not a big stress when i lose one but um so you do wear those underneath no you don't need to the magnification um of the uh the lens in front um uh, allows you to um focus on the option on the object without the necessary adjustment of the diopters you don't need your glasses underneath the magnifying lens Yes, and I know Kate has said to me many times, Mark, that um, she's very careful to watch you when you fall asleep in the sun with your glasses on in case you burn your retinas out with the strength of those. Um, <laughs> Particularly if I've got my, um, <laughs> my surgical loop <laughs> on. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your score out of 10, Mark? Well, the ones I've got on at the moment are 7.6, um, and I'm looking 7. to 6. upgrade so that I um, don't have to share. Good. And once you upgrade, you must tell us the brand and where we can purchase it from, and we'll put a link to it on vetgurus.com. So, Mark, first news story I am taking, and that is about elephants. And this is about a new tool to monitor the well-being of captive elephants. And the method's already been in use at elephant elephant facilities across the United Kingdom on a total of 29 elephants, which I don't think is that much, but thank goodness, in, in my opinion, that we haven't got as many elephants in captivity as we used to have. Um, and that is actually almost half the total UK captive population at the time when this test was done. So the researchers, Mark, at the University of Nottingham have developed a tool to help zookeepers zookeepers monitor the well-being of elephants in their care and basically they thought 
that their comment is that their new tool provides for the first time a reliable way for people looking after captive elephants to use the elephant's behaviours to monitor their welfare over time. And this is where I get a little bit annoyed, or may I say perhaps a little bit angry mark about this um, because when I read on it talks about the tool is to be completed by the keeper and consists of four one minute live observational assessments daytime behavior questions and nighttime observations and mark I've managed to get a couple of the questions that they've been asking these elephants and they and um, invariably when they ask them are you a happy elephant in the zoo um, most of them end up saying I'm not so um, I think it's a problem, um, this particular study, even though it was reported in a well-respected journal, which was PLOS One. And as you know, Mark, you do like PLOS One as far as the quality of the papers that are finally published in there. But I'm always a little bit sceptical about these sorts of reports, Mark, um, about observational sort of assessments um, of whether animals are happy or not um, in this particular situation, especially with elephants. Um, and it makes me a little bit sad is probably the best way to, <laughs> to describe it rather than angry, Mark. Um, so that's story number one. Um, I thought it was going to be an up- uplifting story, I Mark. it was too. I thought it was going to be. Well, yeah, I suppose it is in a way in that they're thinking maybe we should try and assess the well-being a little bit more objectively than we have in the past for these captive animals, especially the ones that we know are probably struggling um, to cope with things like boredom um, in captivity like elephants and some of these supposed higher functioning um, animals. Um, But, yeah, it just made me a little bit sad, Mark, um, and I thought maybe we'll yeah, it's another reason why we shouldn't be having these animals in captivity, or that's my opinion anyway. You know how I respect your opinion, Brendan. My story, on the other hand, um, hopefully, well, just it's amazing and it should be uplifting. Um, my story is a, another superpower that geckos <laughs> You love your superpowers, don't you? I'm always, I'm always thinking of superpowers I might have, you know, should the opportunity, if there ever is a radioactive animal wandering through the hospital that happens to bite me, um, what superpower? Well, I'll stop you there, Mark. I, I mean, I, I need to ask you the question that's commonly asked, you know, if you were to choose one superpower, what would it be? Jeez. That's hard. And that changes weekly. Um, Does it? Well, yeah, well, yeah. I've put you on the Let's, spot there a bit, haven't I? Yeah. So my my answer there, Mark, is, and I've had that. I think the girls have asked me that several times over the years, especially when they were young and they used to watch some of the superhero um, cartoons and and films with me. Um, the Marvel I comic I always, universe. Yeah, I, I think I always end up saying the same one. I'd just like to be able to fly. There you go. Um, you didn't. You, you'd yeah. appreciate that one being a bit yeah. of a birdo. I think you're right. Now that I reflect on it, that's probably what I should have answered as well. <laughs> so sorry to cut 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 you off there, Mark. Um, um, just when you're talking about a, a particular superpower. Well, my 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 story um, about uh, geckos. Uh, you, you already know that. Um, you know, they can run up walls. They've got um, those bloody little microscopic tiny hooks reminiscent of Velcro that allows them to, like, climb up ridiculously smooth surfaces like glass. Um, and I was I was regaling you with um, stories of um, when I go to visit Southeast Asian countries in particular, um, any tropical locations, even Fiji, I suppose, um, the, the the accommodation we have are often pleasantly overrun with um, geckos, most commonly the Asian house geckos, um, and I cannot help but try to catch the little beggars. Um, it's just one of those childhood things. I like to have a good close look at them, and I never am able to because they're fast. And this article points out how much speed they actually have. They can run at nearly a metre per second. And when that 
immense speed is transferred to uh, running on water, what do you know, Brendan? They can actually just scoot across the surface of water. They can walk on water. Um, geez, I just don't know how many more things um, that uh, that geckos can do. So um, the there are several very interesting. Uh, physical principles that are involved in their ability to uh, run over the surface of water. Um, the first of them is um, surface tension. So like uh, ducks, um, uh, they hit, slap the water um, and create uh, a surface, an indent in the surface uh, tension, the meniscus, um, and that um, surface tension um, is is part of what sustains them. And we know that because scientists in their despicable cruel nature um, have put droplets of surfactant soaps into water and got these geckos to run over them and they sink, Brendan. Um, but the surface tension is not the whole story. They The way that the lizards move the serpentine movements of their body, um, the uh, smooth water-repellent nature of their skin allows them to hydroplane over the surface of the water in a manner reminiscent of speedboats. Um, so there's so many things about this story that just, um, like get me excited and amaze me. Every time I think I've got a grasp on the natural world, um, I, I just am amazed at the the uh, new things that you can learn and dis discover. Um, and it amazes me that there are researchers who, um, who you know, first of all, um, look at this sort of stuff that um, design experiments, that design ponds, I suppose, tanks, um, slow motion cameras, um, and they look at this stuff and uh, make deductions about the various um, various uh, physical uh, characteristics that allow it to happen, um, uh, but also then splash a little bit of soap in the water to see if they can make those animals sink. Um, it's a, I, I reckon this ability to run over would a water would be just an outstanding defence. Um, you know, there's so many predators that uh, and uh, people on holidays in tropical islands who would be desperate to catch one of these geckos and an extra, um, uh, you know, ability to exit stage left um, would would be a, a huge advantage in terms of survival. So um, I think that's an amazing story, Brendan. Well, I think you've answered your own question about your superhero power <laughs> there, Mark, because I think most of your staff think you walk on water as it is, so um, that is your superpower, Mark. Um, you're a gecko. Um, you're a gecko in disguise. <laughs> I, I think there could be worse <laughs> things to come back as, Brendan. <laughs> yes. My last news story, Mark, is... The ongoing debate about self-awareness and as I think you've gone into great detail in previous podcasts about this with other stories, Mark, about the, the mirror test to evaluate whether or not an animal is capable of being self-aware or ha has self-recognition where you put a dot or a mark on the animal animal's face um, traditionally and then um, you hold a mirror up to that animal and if it sees that mark and tries to rub it off then the assumption is that it's aware of itself um, and um, this was a um, this particular test was done in a a little cleaner wrasse um, a fish and um, they discovered that it did seem potentially to notice that it did have a mask they put i think they put the mark on its neck region mark and um, the conclusion from the main researcher was that perhaps this little fish is self-aware although there was a little bit of a debate mark when we talk when we move further down this particular article which we link on our website um, one of the other a um neuroscientist um, suggests that maybe it does not particularly indicate that 
um, argument is correct because it may be a continuum mark of understanding their own reflections rather than a binary pass or fail system, a little bit like what you were talking about last week with um, with identity and sex, sexual orientation, Mark. It is not binary. Um, so how aware this fish is of itself. Um, I must admit, Mark, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here. I look in the mirror every morning and I think, who the hell are you? Um, and I don't know whether you have the same um, same thoughts every morning, And um, um, but I certainly do. So, did, so um, in this article, I've got to ask you a quick question. The, the continuum, yes. at each end of the continuum, the researchers, uh, some of the crit- scientists criticising the research, they're talking about um, self-recognition versus self-awareness um and i don't they i don't know brendan they seem like very it seems like a very abstract difference i mean to recognize yourself in a mirror almost has to carry with it the you know that you're aware of yourself you, I don't know. I don't know that there. I think yes. maybe there's a false dichotomy being a, applied to this. Yes, I'm not sure what their nuance with that with with those um, differences it particularly is. There, Mark. I mean, the the other the other criticism was from Gordon Gallup, who was who is an evolutionary psychologist, um, who was the inventor of the mirror test, and he is not convinced um, because he was arguing that this particular fish um, as you know Mark and maybe some of our listeners don't um, it is preoccupied with ectoparasites on the bodies of other fish because it's a cleaner um, of ectoparasites off the surface of other fish or fishes um, and the consequence of its cleaning lifestyle it may have just been seeing this little mark and, and going into automatic cleaning phase um, and it may not be a self-awareness um, aspect with it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I could imagine that at, at a conference of the neuro neuropsychologists, um, they'd be um, they'd just talk in circles, wouldn't they, Mark, <laughs> um, with this particular thing? Um, um, and, 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 and they'd probably be looking in the mirror in the toilet um, um, and talking to themselves, and they'd suddenly realise, hey, I'm talking to myself, I'm not somebody else. <laughs> how, so with the cleaner ass, how did they actually um, – I will have to find the, the, um, the, the actual article, I think, because how would they apply a mark that the fish couldn't feel? How do they distinguish – between like the sensation that there's something on my skin and I've got to get it off and there's something yeah we're going to have to check this out Brendan this doesn't make sense yes yes well let's see they said um, I'm just trying to go down the summary there they put 10 wild caught wrasses in individual tanks outfitted with a mirror um, and many reacted aggressively to their reflections at first and were trying to fight it um Eventually, the behaviour gave way to something far more interesting. The fish began behaving strangely, approaching their reflections upside down or dashing towards the mirror only to stop before touching it. And um, then they, once the fishes were, fish were acquainted with the mirrors, they injected a benign brown gel under the skin of eight of them. And some of the injections were placed in places where the rats could not see couldn't see without the aid of a mirror such as on their throats um i hope they did that under a observation mark the rats has scraped their throats only in the presence of a mirror and only when the mark they sported was colored fish injected with a clear mark didn't scrape and neither did those with a coloured mark where when no mirrors were present. So that sort of clarifies it a little bit. So in, in that respect, it was um, quite quite well designed, I think, yeah. Um, so the suggestion was that they recognised only their reflections as their own bodies. Do you know, Brendan, when um, I've been diving that, one of my dive masters told me that I should just... Um, uh, go up to one of these cleaner ass and open my mouth, and they actually will swim in and clean your teeth. 
Um, I don't know what to say about that, Mark. Um, um, I was going to say something that would, would, would be quite, quite rude and suggest that maybe you need to get out there and um, do a bit of swimming. Um, <laughs> well, that, well, but no, you've got very pearl, pearl white teeth there, Mark, and um, you, I don't think you'd ever need to um, open your mouth while you're underwater near one of those. But um, I think you was having that you was pulling your leg um, by saying, "No, no, that. it's true. Yes. I've done it." Sure have you? Going. And that, have they yeah, cleaned your they teeth? Swim into they... your mouth and have a pick around at the edges, depending on how much you've cleaned uh, your teeth the morning before you go for a dive. Depending on what you've had exactly. lunch or breakfast. <laughs> yes. Ah. So my final bit of news, um, I have to, this is one of those ones where I definitely need to pay credit to the wonderful source who provided me with this article. That's you, Brendan. Um, this, I'm just, I have, ever since you've, um, made me aware of this article. I've just been increasingly excited about it. Um, and an article probably doesn't do the, um, well, it's a website. Um, it's the um, Winks and Blinks website. And Mark, it wasn't me who, um, I forwarded it to oh, you. Of course. And it was originally from um, our good friend, Dr. Hume, Dr. Uh, Sandy it, it Hume. Does, it so. has that quirky Sandy Hume character to it too, doesn't it? Yes. Um, but yes. it's it's entrancing. The more I look at it, the more excited I get. And it's such a simple, um, such a simple concept. So um, you were saying before, I think the guy who set this website up is a... Uh, neurologist as well. A neurologist? Let me just find. Or an, uh, he is a, let me have a look, a clinical yeah. neurologist, retired. Yes. And Brendan, what he has done is um, start a discussion about winks and blinks. So this uh, website is a knowledge platform. I'm reading from the about page. This no, this website is a knowledge platform for the exchange of information and ideas on blinking and its diversification and evolution across the species. Blinking, we know, played a key role in the emergence of our ancestors from the sea and in the adoption of a terrestrial lifestyle. What is less clear is why different species moved on to blink in so many different ways. Why do some creatures blink with their upper lid, eyelids? Why do others with their lower? Why do some have a nictitating membrane? Why do some retract their eyeballs? Rabbits and guinea pigs hardly blink at all. In cats, you may get a glimpse of the third eyelid or the nictitating membrane. Blinking can be so brief that it can only be caught on video. It is in birds that blinking really comes into its own. So this website is filled with videos and stills of blinking across a wide range of species. Um, and each of the uh, sections discusses the anatomy um, and sometimes uh, makes theoretical um, uh, uh, guesses about the evolutionary purpose of the blink in each individual species. Um, as uh, they suggest... There's a great deal to be understood in this topic. Um, but, geez, Brendan, it's it's just, uh, I like I said, I'm entranced and I just can't stop um, clicking on the, um, the, the uh, drop-down box, picking another um, filer and um, looking at the, um, both the stills and the... Um, the short videos that um, uh, show the various forms of blinking across the species. It's a it's a wonderful site and it's very well set out as well. And yeah, when you drop down that list, you have a list of fish, frogs, turtles, lizards, crocodilia, birds, mammals, and various other um, topics on on blinking. And um, I just found the background to it quite interesting. As well, Mark, um, how John Morris is a person's name. Um, he retired 10 years ago as a clinical neurologist in Sydney and he started videoing his patients, Mark. This is how it all started in the 1980s um, when video cameras first became available. Um, and he videoed patients with interest in physical signs or those that might be 
where there might be a doubt about the diagnosis and he used to publish these videos um, and his, his interest in retiring turned to birds and the way they blinked and then it sort of snowballed from there, Mark. So, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful site and I encourage every all of our listeners to have a, have a look at it and, and very obviously very visual and um, um, amazing slow motion videos of um, the blinking of all these species and he's broken it down to how many millisecond, milliseconds of each particular um, aspect of, of of the blink with with the species that he's recorded. It's um, yeah, it's fascinating, and um, yeah, don't don't stare too hard, Mark. Make sure you blink um, when you're reading it because um, you'll get sore eyes um, if you stare at really, it too long. It's I'm such sure. a good um, like you, you it's um, wonderful. Just, it's just so interesting, and and you know something as um, I don't. Some people might think of it as everyday or mundane, but it's it's um it's fascinating to look at the different uh, ways that the and the purposes that blinking can serve. Um, and the videos are awesome, and the Australian focus. I can. That's the many of the species are Australian animals, and um, and I always love that when I get to see um some of our Australian reptiles or birds. So. So, yes. Fantastic site, Mark. Um, and, yes, um, I totally agree with you. And it even includes a, a little section on chickens that blink when they peck and um, some a series of photos about how chickens blink just as they're pecking over several milli, hundred milliseconds. So, yeah, a good... Um, Fascinating. I was going to say good time waster. I suppose it is in, in one respect, but it was um, a fascinating website and um, good stuff. So we should jump into our um, main topic in the in the ten minutes <laughs> or so we have left, and um, it might end up being a two part of this one, Mark. Um, it's a little bit to do with um, a follow on from a previous episode. I think episode twenty one is titled Dystochia in Reptiles, and this one's a little bit more specific, Mark, isn't it? We're going to talk about dystochia or reproductive problems. Let's just call it reproductive problems, not just dystochia, in lizards. Um, so we're going to make it try and narrow it down a little bit because it's even within lizards it's a fairly huge topic to cover and um, I think we'll just touch on some of our favourite experiences and, and um, thoughts on conditions that we see in lizards relating to the reproductive system, Mark. So do you want to kick it off and talk about talk about something? Let's, Let's talk about talk something. About something. Um, so uh, probably the first topic... Um, I would, I'm going to talk about um, is uh, follicular stasis, Brendan. Um, I think that um, that's probably one of the, particularly around um, this time of year over the last um, eight weeks or so, it's one of the very common presentations that we see um, that the, uh, the, probably the most common cat, uh, pet lizard um, in Australia is the inland bearded dragon. It probably um, does represent the most common patient we see with this problem. Um, but they reach a point where for a number, a whole variety of reasons, that um, uh, they've gone through the process of vitellogenesis. They've uh, had the very small follicles developed into very significant follicles, maybe expanding... 10 or 20 fold in preparation for uh, ovulation um, and then things stop, Brendan. They just stop. Um, so um, do you think there's, there, is there reasons that you commonly see that, uh, that these, lizards, these lizards develop follicular stasis? Yes. And the other species, I suppose, that... Um some of our listeners overseas, especially Europe and the States, um, the, the classic one there, Mark, um, would be, and I, I've seen a few of them here in the in the wildlife parks and the museum, Mark, and that's our um, our chameleons um, are very prone to it. The veiled chameleon in particular, I think, is a species that's really prone to the follicular stasis. So I'm sure some of our 
overseas listeners have certainly seen them with the follicular stasis as well. So causes, well, I mean, I always get, you know, I'm a basic person, Mark, as you, as you know. Um, I get back to the basics with these and, and then I look at the husbandry and, and some of them it's uh, the obvious husbandry inadequacies and um, the one that always jumps out with me with any of the reptiles that are not popping out their eggs or the, or their live young, but particularly the eggs, is that they they haven't got an adequate husbandry and adequate nesting sites. Um, so the animal then decides, hey, why am I going to lay eggs if there's nowhere to lay them? And it certainly holds true for these species we're talking about, but also the other reptiles like the crocodilians um, and the snakes as well, Mark. So that's what I always go back to, and that's the importance of getting that detailed history for that new client especially if, if or if you're not dealing with the reptiles very often um, having that detailed history sheet that the client fills in and really quizzing them on hey what's the current problem with your reptile okay it's um i think it's got a belly full of eggs um and um when do you think it mated? What's your enclosure set up? How many hides do you have? Do you have a little nest site for that lizard? And if so, what's it constructed of? What is the actual substrate in there? And is it adequate for the animal? So I, I always think of, that was a long-winded answer there, Mark, to um, the first comment, and that would be a lack of nest inside. And I think, um, you know, what you say is precisely what we observe, that um there's a whole range of stimuli, whether it be um, temperature, as it always is with reptiles, whether it's um, visual stimuli, the the presence of other lizards, and of course the um, possibility of a nesting site. Um, all those husbandry issues can definitely have a big impact on uh, whether a lizard goes ahead from that um, development of follicles. Um, so that process is sometimes referred to, um, and this often confuses me, um, so that part is often referred to as pre-ovulatory follicular stasis. And while I'm easily confused, it is simply just uh, the fact that those uh, stasis occurs while the follicles are still attached to the ovary in that case and that probably the, the you know um, certainly it's a very common thing for us to see in bearded dragons and in the literature and also in that the few numbers we don't see so many chameleons in the nature parks up here but the ones that i have seen um, follicular stasis seems to be a, a pre-ovulatory follicular stasis seems to be a particular problem um Post-ovulatory follicular, post-ovulatory stasis, where the um, the the uh, uh, the follicle has been ovulated and passed into the reproductive tract, um, that's often uh, complicated by infections. We see a relatively large number of um, metrodides infections in the oviduct, um, salpin. Gitides, I think that probably is a more correct word. Um, they, um, those infectious uh, problems in the reproductive tract definitely change the character, um, the motility, um, the characteristics of the reproductive tract and make uh, post-ovulatory stasis, um, often of partially developed or completely developed eggs, are much more common. Is that something that you see as well, Brendan? Absolutely. And thanks for pointing out those differences there between the different types of the stasis there, um, which I which I should have done, but you described it so eloquently there, Mark. It was I was I was sitting back here wrapped at your little um, summary there. Fantastic. Um I could never say it that shut up that, um, that be beautifully, Mark. It was wonderful. <laughs> It was. It warmed my heart. <laughs> that was great. Um, and yes, and and that's where I think we do see a fair number of them. Um, so we talk. If we should have, we should have called this pre and we we should have just called it stasis, shouldn't we? Um, I suppose. Yeah. You know how I get pedantic about some of these sort of things when I realise that I should have explained it um, better than I did. So, yes, we do see infectious processes with those 
post-ovulatory follicular stasis cases because, well, getting back to the pre-ovulatory <laughs> one, mate, coming back, um, what should happen if things go to plan, and that's what I always describe to the students that we have through and some of the vets who have, don't, don't have much experience with with um, these um, seeing reptiles, is that if things go to plan um, and that reptile goes into reproductive phase, the way I simplify it is two, two things should happen if things work properly. One is that um, it goes into ovula, it, it produces those follicles and it decides, okay, I haven't mated or um, I shouldn't have done this and it resorbs and it resorbs those follicles. And I have a good series of, an amazing series of um, radiographs, Mark, and I'm sure you'd have the same of, of reptiles that have, um, um, where you've taken a radiograph or perhaps an ultrasound and you have a, a, a um, salamic cavity full of follicles there and then you do you repeat that um, procedure several weeks or months later and they've disappeared and haven't been passed out um, so they resorb the follicles um, or they decide to pop them out don't they mark um, then they um, pass those follicles out and there's a few different names that um, the herpetologists call them don't they those um and um, those follicles that have not been um, that have not been um, um, fertilised, and I suppose the the generic term is slugs. I suppose is is there other terms that we no, use? No, no. Most of the that? keepers that I get to speak to refer to them as slugs. So yeah, so jumping back to what I was saying there, yeah, it, 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 if things go right, they either get popped out um, or they get resorbed and. Um, the dystochia sort of issue that we're dealing with, whether they're pre or post um, ovulatory um, follicular stasis, um, things are going wrong um, with them. So that process is not working. And yes, with those post um, ovulatory ones where they've um, moved off from that ovarian structure, there, then yeah, I do find that a, a large percentage of them, I reckon, virtually. Most of the mark will have some sort of infectious process going on there, and the, the way I sort of tend to remember that or, or think of that is that um, they typically end up with um, follicles that are stuck together, or even worse, that they have um, ruptured there. And as we know, um, yolk and the contents of these um, follicles is uh, very, very irritant. So we have a pretty severe inflammatory response, and then. Not soon afterwards, um, we often end up with an infectious process happening there. So, you know, to be honest, I, I, I think a, a, a very large percentage of them will have an infectious component once you get to that stage. Have, have you it's, found that, Mark? And look, this is one of Mark's theories. Um, I, I have no um, scientific evidence to back this up, um, but I, I, I agree with you that the vast majority of... Um, of stasis, whether it's um, post-ovulatory, a dystochia of some sort, or whether it's pre-ovulatory and the follicles are still attached to the the um, the ovary, they almost always end up with infections. And um, and the key thing I think is cause and effect in my experience. So this is the Marx theory part. I reckon that um, the infections tend to happen after the problem with. Uh, pre-ovulatory stasis. I think that that's a functional metabolic problem, and but they do get contaminated, infected. Um, we often find uh, ovarian abscesses. We often find necrotic tissue attached to those um, those uh, stacks of follicles. Um, there does seem to be, like you were saying, there seems to be a little bit of a window where the follicles uh, get to a certain size and above that they cannot be resorbed. So they just sit there if they're not ovulated and get to the the um, oviduct. Um, and below that size there, you know, the hormones can manage the body so that they can be resorbed. Uh, but I think most of the time the infections are secondary in the pre-ovulatory ones, but I very often I reckon their primary the infections of the oviduct are primary causes of, uh, of dystochia. Many of the um, oviducts we've, you know, where we've had um, to 
do caesareans, um, many of the samples we've taken have demonstrated both white cells and bacteria within the wall of the oviduct. So um, I think they're causative in one and complicate the other. So um, it doesn't really matter, yes. I suppose, in terms of clinical. You're going to have to use some antibiotics to treat them. Um, but um, I think it does focus your attention, those pre-ovulatory ones, as you said, um, you really have to focus on the husbandry and the the various stimuli that um, that lead a lizard to the point of ovulating. Um, if they're not all there, then you're going to get into trouble and then infections will make it worse. Yes. And the diagnosis of these cases, Mark, what's your sort of general approach to those or your recommendations if you have a have a female bearded dragon or, or a um, chameleon or, or another species of lizard that's prone to this condition um, that's not quite right um, and it's in the sort of breeding window season, um, whatever you want to call it, and it's um, not a happy-looking lizard and you palpate that lizard and you can feel some lumps and bumps in there and you're fairly certain their follicles there. What, what's your work? Well, there's probably a couple of things that, um, that uh, we do. We certainly want to get imaging. We want to stick the ultrasound on or take uh, radiographs so that we can um, uh, visualise the the nice, neat, egg-shaped structures. Um, and though the diagnostic imaging, particularly ultrasound, can give us some clues about whether we're dealing with uh, something that's within the oviduct or whether it's still attached to the, the, um, the ovary. We're probably in most instances suggesting that we need to get some blood work done. Um, we do want to get a bit of an idea of... Uh, you know, if there is a significant white cell reaction, we also want a bit of an idea about um, the um, electrolytes and uh, calcium balance in those lizards. Um, those things can all influence renal function and they can all have an effect on um, on the the responsiveness of the, uh, of the lizard to... Um, medical therapy or whether you've uh, then got ahead to uh, surgical intervention. And my experience is that lizards probably sit a little bit between, we're probably a little bit more patient um, with our lizards and medical therapy. We're very pleased with, you know, many of our turtles will, you just wave the oxytocin near the water and and uh, they'll start popping out eggs. Um, lizards tend to uh, you supplement them with uh, parenteral calcium um, and then uh, give them a dose of oxytocin and, um, and a significant proportion of them, particularly if they're, um, you know, uh, I suppose they've got a number of other, you know, if you do set up their hospital cage with an appropriate um, nesting site that has appropriate substrate with appropriate um, moisture in it, um, then a certain proportion, proportion of the lizards will lay. We don't see that with snakes. I can, can pour oxytocin into them uh, endlessly and um, they just, they're very resistant to the effects to medical uh, interventions and almost always with snakes, we've got to leap in and and uh, and um, take advantage of Brendan's excellent surgical technique. Um, and there is individual variation between different species, but I generally find lizards lie a little between turtles and snakes, um, and probably a little bit closer to um, turtles in terms of uh, sometimes having success with medical therapy. But a large number of them, Brendan, end up on the surgery table. Is that your experience? Yes, and I think increasingly so. In fact, I have one on the go at the moment, although it is still on the medical treatment there, um, and it did have a very severe inflammatory response on its bloods, and it looked like it had some follicles that ended up adhering um, in, a, in a bit of a clump over the several weeks that we have been treating it. Open, so Brendan. I was... A chance to cut is a well, chance to cure. I, I know, I know, but I, it's actually improved a lot, this this one. Um, 
but I, from day one with this particular case, I, I, I've been regretting not getting in there and spaying it and desexing it. Um, but it has uh, the the bloods have bounced back really nicely. Um, so my only comment with that is don't do as Brendan's uh, Brendan does, but do what Brendan <laughs> says. Um, and that's if you have a pretty severe inflammatory response and a really sick looking lizard with this, I, I certainly would not be going down the track of, for instance, you, um, tr- going with oxytocin and and getting them to to strain against that because we're not going to get anywhere and might cause the difficult thing- troubles. The difficult yeah, the thing, Brendan, is that very often, and you and I both know this, we're constrained by the the uh, perception of the clients that a surgical intervention is going to be whew, so expensive um, and medical intervention is going to be all oh, so, like, inexpensive. Whereas my experience is that, you know, like you've said, you've been working on this lizard for several weeks and, crikeys, if you, if you charged as you bloody well should, um, it would be just as expensive to do several weeks of medical therapy as it would just to cut the thing in the first instance. It's a false economy, in my uh, professional opinion, to persist um, with uh, medical therapy in those cases which require surgical therapy. Yes, I stand corrected, (laughs) Mark, and uh, I'll take the slap across the wrist. And um, no, you're absolutely correct. And um, Yes, the um, lovely clients, these ones, and um, I can't wait to get in there and do that surgery, although it's um, doing quite well now and it's eating and it's pooing and it's um, the, the cell counts, uh, the white cell counts now within normal range. Um, and it's actually well, you've probably done a good thing because I, um, I, you've led me right into the, the I think, you know, I think it's quite likely that you will need to spay this lizard at some point. Um, but I think if you can do a little bit of that supportive care, um, they they are, as you say, when they first present um, metabolic disasters. And so um, a little bit of fluid um, and a uh, um, bit of analgesia, calcium supplementation, maybe some antibiotics if they're appropriate, um, they're... they're um, it's not a bad thing to go through that process before you uh, um, decide to cut them open and solve the problem, I reckon. Yes, so keep them alive. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, Brendan. Kill them in got surgery. To, I've got to <laughs> ask you quick because we're going to make this two parts. I can sense you're cutting us yes, off. Yes, we are. Um, but I do want to, just before we close off stage one, um, ask you about, like, I, this is one of my, pet hates. I'm going to jump on my, it makes me angry, Brendan. This makes me angry. Um, I hope it's not something I do. The two-phase technique. So many reptile keepers, particularly snakes, but also lizard keepers come into me with their bloody dystochic reptiles with their pre-ovulatory follicular stasis bearded dragons and proceed to tell me that they've, you know, tried to manipulate the eggs down to the... Massaged. Massaged it, exactly. Gently massaged it. And in the process, ruptured the bloody fragile follicles and poured that yolk, the vitiline substance, all through the abdomen and caused the animal no end of pain, creating a huge inflammatory response and making it markedly more difficult to solve the problem. Do you have clients who love the toothpaste technique, Brendan? Yes, as much as I love the toothpaste technique for other situations, yes, I think you're correct there. Um, Although I haven't had a client um, bring in a reptile where they've done that recently, but yeah, I've I've certainly had lots of those disasters in the past, Mark. Yeah, we ha- we are going to have to make it a two part of this one, Mark. So part two will be next week. And and speaking of the toothpaste technique and um, inadequate or, or or inappropriate massage, Mark. Did I did I tell you the story about one of the massages I had when I was in India? No, in you December? didn't. Tell me, tell me, tell me, do. So, so I'll, I'll close off with this um, before the um, before the um, outro man jumps in. Um, we stayed in this. Well, I won't name the the, the particular town. Um, it was quite a quirky town in north um, west india and we stayed at this place that was described as a resort <laughs> um we were the only people in the whole, whole um, 
the whole resort, the only the only um, the only people staying there apart from the ten staff that were there. And um, I um, I like a bit of a full body massage, Mark. Um, I find them quite relaxing. Although in this case it was the complete opposite. Um, and I ordered this whole body massage, and it was a particular technique that's um, I think it originated um, in India. Um, I forget the name of it. Um, and um, yeah, it was a full one hour whole body massage, and it was let me <laughs> let me. <laughs> Quite aggressive, let me just say the um, the technique um, <laughs> that, that I had, and um, <laughs> I had the massage in in a in one of the separate rooms because obviously the rest of the resort of the thirty rooms that were there on this resort were empty. Um, apart from, wait, well, we had two rooms. The girls were in one room next door to our room, and uh, I had the massage on the ground floor. There was a two floor um, resort. And went back to my room and Annie thought, gee, you look a little bit spaced out, you know, which you tend to do after a bit of a massage and it's, you know, good for the mind usually and the body as well. And then the next day I um, I looked down and I had these incredibly deep bruises over most of my body. It looked like I'd been, you know, accosted in the street and, and, and um, had the... Um, had the um, had the crap beaten out of me, Mark, um, in and left in the gutter. Um, so, and and they, you know, they did the usual bruising from the sort of the blues to the greens and the browns and all the colours of the rainbow. And I was I was bloody sore <laughs> for the next week, Mark. Um, so it was a pretty. It was a um, yeah, it was not a very nice experience there, Mark. Um, but um, I don't know um, how to end it here, apart from um, turn the outro guy on. And um, we'll see you with part two next week. Um, but don't use the toothpaste technique for these cases. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you.